It's great to be with you all. If you will, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. This morning I'll be preaching from verses 10 through 13, but I'd like to read 10 through 23 just to establish the context. So if you'll look with me there, Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I receive everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren whom are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So here Paul ends the letter to the Philippians. And if you'll remember some of the context of the book itself, Paul's following up here what he's already said about anxiety, not to worry about anything, but to present your request to God. And Paul currently is in prison in Rome himself. So he is encouraging the church in Philippi, you guys don't worry. He's in prison. You think there'd be need for him to worry, but he says, You guys don't worry. The focus is on them and encouraging them not to worry. The church in Philippi has taken care of him before, but there's been some time that has passed since they last took care of him, financially provided for him, helped him along in the ministry. So as the time has passed, there could be reason for Paul to feel like the church at Philippi no longer cared for him. But he makes it clear to the church now, I never doubted that you cared for me. And now that they know where he's at in prison, They've taken this chance to send Epaphroditus to him to encourage him all the more, to provide for his needs as he's in prison. And he lets them know that he's encouraged by this and knows that they never stop caring for him. This proves for Paul their continuous affection, even though there was this gap in time. And Paul greatly rejoices in this. And then we have this talk he gives on um, being content. And the fact is, you almost see this as an outflowing from Paul perhaps as an accident for him having to deal with the fact that he's grateful for what they've done, but he wants them to understand it's not just that he's hungry for the money. He's not just in it to be provided for. He wants them to understand what it means to be content and that he's learned the secret to contentment and nonetheless is grateful for their care of him. Hebrews 13.5, we are commanded to be content. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So here you have, be content with what you have. Given to you as a command in Hebrews. This doesn't seem to fit with our culture, however. Um, Our culture, I don't know what you could come up with for a slogan for our culture, but perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker maybe before, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And in a consumer culture, that seems to be a slogan. It's what can you accumulate? What can you surround yourself with? What kind of stuff do you have? And that doesn't seem to fit with what Paul's saying here at all. It's not about what you can accumulate or, or what we can gain. Paul has found the secret to contentment no matter what his lot in life is. Whether he's rich or poor, he makes it clear in the passage. He refers to two different states. Now, he gives three words for each state. He says, humble means, it's one of those states. If we look back at Philippians 4, um, looking down at verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Then verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So notice here we have, I think, two states he gives descriptive words for. We have humble means, and he also describes this as going hungry and suffering need. And that's compared with prosperity. He says, I know how to live in prosperity. And that also is described as being filled or having abundance. And so I want to give some thought, first off, what does he mean by these two circumstances? And why is there a need for contentment even in these circumstances? First off, the humble means. There is some advantage to being in humble means in terms of contentment. It causes us to depend upon Christ and therefore His power to be demonstrated to us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 reads, And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And what is that strength that Paul has in this letter that he's referring to? The strength he has is Christ's power living in him. So Paul's explaining to them, you know, I desire for this thorn in my flesh to be gone. But Christ has made it clear to me, inasmuch as it makes me weak, it becomes clear to everyone around me that the power that's in me is Christ's power dwelling in me. So you begin to understand that one advantage it is to being in humble means is that what we do have becomes clear that it's from Christ. It's God who provides for everything we have. We're constantly having to turn to Him, praying that He will provide what we need. And it causes us a dependence upon Him. We must be willing to descend at times. We must become less so that Christ may become greater. We must decrease that He may increase. And in so doing, in that decrease itself, we find that Christ is uplifted. He's made more of, sometimes even when we're made less of. And that's so contrary to what we're taught, what we're taught to believe and feel in our culture. We're to make it much of ourselves. We're to accomplish much. But sometimes in Christ decreasing us, He's increasing Himself in us. 
oftentimes there are things in our lives that we feel like we would um, like to have an increase in. We would like to have improved. Um, it may be our home. We think if only our home was a little bit bigger. Uh, have another child. We think if only we had one more bedroom. Or if only our living room was a little bit bigger. Or our dining room. We could be more hospitable. We can invite more people over if only it was a little bit larger. Or it could be our car. If only our car was a little bit nicer. If it wasn't in the shop all the time. Or whatever it may be. If our job, if we could maybe have a little bit more income. Or our clothing. If only we could you know, have a little bit nicer clothing. If we weren't having to use hand-me-downs, maybe we'd be better off. Maybe everything would be a little bit nicer if it was just this much better. But I think, first off, we need to consider... Christ, Matthew 8.20 says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Does that not put it in context? That Christ was a homeless man. We complain that what we have isn't enough. And Christ, who had everything, who had the riches, the splendor of being Godhead himself, condescended for us and became nothing. Another advantage, I think, to being in need or being um, in humble means, as Paul describes it, is that there's no reason for us to be content in that. If we find ourselves to be content, it's not because we have enough to eat or um, we're well provided for. It's because we're dependent on Christ. There's nothing in the state itself for us to be content in, which is in contrast to what we'll talk about in a second with being prosperous. But at the same time, I want to encourage you that being content, contentment is not an excuse for laziness, for carelessness. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. And it's worse than an unbeliever. So we're encouraged to press on, to do what we can to provide for our family. But realize whatever lot it is that God has placed us in, is for our good. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, have a quote from him. I think he sums this up well. He says, God has sovereignly placed us where we are. If you are poor, you should be well content with your position. Because depend upon it. It is the fittest for you. Unerring wisdom cast your lot. If you were rich, you would not have so much grace as you have now. Perhaps God knew that did He not make you poor, He would never get you to heaven at all. And so He has kept you where you are, that He may bring you to heaven. And I think he says it well. To realize that a sovereign hand that makes no mistakes has places where we are. And yet we, we go against it. We think, it's not right. We deserve more. I have a right to more. But God has placed us here for our good. His grace is demonstrating this. As Spurgeon says, perhaps it is that we would not get to heaven at all if we were more dependent on the things around us, instead of on Christ. If we weren't forced to look to Christ, or at least we would not be as strong as we are, we would not have the grace that we have now 
if He had placed us in some different lot in our life. If there had been a better condition for you, God would have placed you in it. Psalm 119, verse 67 and 71 reads, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then also, uh, verse 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. What is it that we treasure most? Would we prefer to go without affliction? Or would we prefer to learn God's statutes, His Word, and to be kept in the Word, to follow God's Word? What do we value more? Would we say, it's good for me to be afflicted so I can keep your Word? Or do we, every time that affliction comes, we shake our hand at God? How dare you? Why do I have to go through this? And not see the blessing that apart from affliction, we would not go in the way of God's Word. So there's reason for us, even in humble means, to be content. But now turning to prosperity. I want to say, first of all, prosperity, riches in themselves, are not bad. The Scriptures tell us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's oftentimes misquoted to uh, money is the root of all evil. Money itself causes all evil. But the Scripture tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's loving the money that causes us into other kinds of evil. But prosperity itself is not bad. You look at a man like Job. You read about Job's description. He seems to be very prosperous. Yet God himself says to Satan of him, he says, no one is like him on all the earth, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning from evil. So I'd say, first off, Prosperity has its challenges, but it itself is not bad. It doesn't have to be a cause for us to lead us away from Christ. But we need special grace to to handle prosperity well. Prosperity carries with it the uh, desire sometimes, the um, threat of worldliness. To become so wrapped up in our possessions that that's what we crave and that's what we look to. That's what we worship. I thought uh, Nick did well earlier in Bible study to bring up the quote from Calvin from the Institutes where he says, our hearts are idle factories. We're always producing something else to worship. Prosperity becomes one more thing around us that we can look to and say, this is what I hope in. This is what I trust in. Because of prosperity, oftentimes we can, it can lead us away from trusting in Christ because we find we no longer have to pray to Christ for our daily needs. We're not praying for, God, will you provide the bread for me to eat today? We've got money. Missing the whole point that it's God who provided that so that we'd have the ability. But oftentimes we look to those things and depend upon that to provide for us. Uh, George Mueller, if any of you have read his biography, he started an orphanage and he really depended upon God to provide. But you read these accounts where um, he gathers some men around him to pray They have no food for the orphans. They haven't really told anybody about this. They just go to God and pray. And oftentimes, they would, after an hour, sometimes two hours of prayer, they'd open their eyes and someone would have brought in some bread and milk for the kids for that day. Enough to feed the orphanage. You see the advantage in the dependence upon God in those circumstances instead of us depending upon our money. Now, we have to be on guard 
that prosperity can cause us to depend on it instead of on Christ. There's always the temptation to think we need a little more. It's always a little more. I mentioned this already, but sometimes we look at this with hospitality. Our family does a budget. Sometimes I'm prone to think if only we had a little bit more available for the budget that we could put some more money here for hospitality, then we can invite more people over. As I said already, sometimes you may feel like it's your home. If only my home was more fit to handle people, then I could have more people over. We tend to think things like that. We see this in the Bible more and more. Men like King Ahab, the king, he has all this wealth, all this that he could look to, and what happens with him? He still wants a little bit more. He looks to Naboth, a somewhat poor farmer, beside him and says he wants his vineyard. He goes to Naboth and tries to get the vineyard, but Naboth doesn't want to give up his vineyard. So what happens in the end, through Jezebel, Naboth is killed, and King Ahab claims that vineyard for his own. How foolish. I mean, you have all these riches, but it's always got to be a little bit more, even if it means the life of another man so you could have his vineyard. Now, King Ahab was one of the worst kings, but King David is one we often think of as a great king. And does he not commit the same sin with Bathsheba? He had women, but he looks to one man's wife and wants her. And remember when when, um, Nathan comes to him, the prophet, and he gives him that parable of the sheep and the the little ewe lamb. This guy has all these sheep. He has a visitor come to him. He needs to slay one. And instead he steals a ewe lamb that the other man treasured so much. Sometimes it's with prosperity. We we desire more and more, just a little bit more. If I only had one more lamb, I'd be... It'd be enough. If I only had a, a few more grapes, it'd be enough. If my vineyard was a little bit bigger, I'd have plenty. But we become so obsessed with it being more and more and more that we miss the point of the blessing that God's already provided for us. This can also cause for God neglecting self-sufficiency, for us to forget about God and look solely to ourselves and think of what we can do. Uh, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, you see the example of the manna. As the manna came, they were to gather just enough to feed them. You remember what happened if they gathered too much? Someone would go gather double, try to provide so they wouldn't have to work the next day. Become infested with worms. It would rot and mold in front of them. They could do the same thing the day before the Sabbath. Gather twice as much, and it would not rot at all. So that the Lord would provide for them on the Sabbath. But when they were greedy and lazy, it rotted before them. The same is true of our hearts. When we long after those riches, our hearts do the same things as the manna did. Just infested, it rots away at our heart to long for those things. Instead of depending upon God each day to provide for us. Mark 10, 23-25 reads, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Though it's impossible with man, it's not impossible with God. Now go back to what I said at the first. Prosperity is not bad. But it carries with it challenges that we have to be aware of forces us sometimes away from contentment and dependence upon God. So now, 
to close, I would like to spend some time looking at what is the secret of contentment. How is it that we come to contentment, whether we're in humble beings or prosperity? Well, first off, we see from Paul's life, it's not a reflection. Contentment is not a reflection of our outward circumstances. It's not a reflection at all of whether or not we're in humble means or whether or not we're in prosperous means. Whatever our lot is, it's not a reflection of that at all. It's dealing with something inside, something with the heart is where we come to contentment, not based upon whatever it is that's going on in our life, however it is that God has provided for us, whatever our lot in life may be. We don't measure sufficiency by abundance. We measure it by the will of God. Whatever God's will is, whatever our lot is, that's what's sufficient for us. And we turn to God and depend upon Him there. When Paul says in this, that in all things... I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The all things here refers to whatever our lot is. Whatever God has given us. Whatever His will is for us in our lives. That's what the all things is. And I just bring that up because I think the passage is so often misused. Um, Primarily, I think we see it in in sporting events. Uh, You play games. Uh, Nick and I talked about this some earlier, but... You know, you can have two teams and both of them claim this. It's a name it and claim it kind of verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My team can win the World Cup through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, that's not what he's saying here. If you were to win the World Cup or if you were to win the ball game, whatever it may be, you only do it because Christ did give you that strength. Christ took care of you and he did that. But you don't take this verse and name it and claim it. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's not promising that you're going to triumph, that you're going to win a ball game, that whatever in your life is, you're going to accomplish it. What he is saying, though, whatever does happen, I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. I can lose through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever happens, I turn to Christ and say, He will give me the strength to make it through this. And so Paul here is specifically speaking of Whatever a lot is, God's will for a life, no matter what it is, all things I can do through Christ who strengthens me. Paul also says, I've learned the secret of contentment. And I'd say from this that this means contentment is something that must be learned. Um, you've seen the title in the bulletin entitled this sermon, The Secret of Contentment. But I don't mean this to be some secret that once you know it, boom, you're content. We're all going to walk out of here and we're going to be perfectly content Christians. We're reached, we've achieved contentment. We've arrived somehow. Paul had to learn contentment. And how do you think Paul learned contentment? Think of his life, what he went through. His road to contentment as he sits near his death in prison. His road to contentment is one none of us would probably choose our own. Floggings constantly being whipped, driven out of cities, wandering around, oftentimes not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. He's stoned to death in one city, left outside the city because they thought they killed him. They stoned him to the point that they thought he was dead. He gets up, comes back in the city. He has escaped at one point by night over the city wall, lest he be killed. Maybe that's not the road we'd want to go to to learn contentment. But contentment is something we're going to 
be constantly having to learn the rest of our life. It's something we have to force ourselves to learn. To pray to God that He would give us not some magic that we're going to leave here and magically be content. But Paul learns what it means to be content. Also, the passage refers to contentment as a mystery. He says, I've learned the mystery of being content. The secret, if you will, to contentment, which is where I came up with the title for this message. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, describes the mystery or the secret of contentment as this. He says we are to be content yet unsatisfied. His words are, Godliness teaches us this mystery. Not to be satisfied with all the world for our portion. And yet to be content with the meanest condition in which we are. So not to be satisfied if we were given the whole world for our lot. If we became emperor of the world and had everything for our possession, not to be satisfied with that. Yet even if we have nothing to be content, why are we not satisfied with those things around us? Oftentimes we find discontentment in our life because we look to satisfaction in those things. Think of your life, those times that we find ourselves almost depressed, um, in the words of the Puritans, melancholy maybe, uh, we're down in the dumps because we look for satisfaction in things around us. Our marriage, you enter marriage thinking, this is what I need. This is what's going to satisfy me. Maybe you realize it doesn't satisfy. Maybe if we had children, that's the secret. Yeah, so you have kids and you realize, uh, still not satisfied. Sometimes we go deeper and deeper in depression. Our jobs... We go into a job and thinking, yep, this is what's going to satisfy me. And we enter it and we find it doesn't do it. So either we get depressed or we think, oh, well, I've got to find another job. Oh, this is the one that's going to make me happy. And it doesn't do it. Time and time again. There's not something wrong with us. It's how God's designed the system. It's how God's made the universe. Those things were never meant to satisfy us. They were meant to drive us to something far greater. We can find happiness in things in this life. But even that is meant to drive us to Christ. They're not meant to satisfy. And that's what Jeremiah Burroughs is saying. If we had all the world, it would not satisfy us. It's not enough. There's something far greater. If we were satisfied, we'd miss out on something greater. So we're not satisfied. But we're content no matter what the circumstance that God gives us. Matthew 13, 44 through 46 reads, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Are we willing to give everything to gain Christ? That's the secret to contentment. Treasuring Christ. That Christ would be the treasurer of our hearts more than anything else. That's the great treasure that the man found in the field. That he's willing to sell all he has if he can gain that one treasure. 
You want contentment. Treasure Christ more than anything else in our life. Find our hope, our value in Christ, not in the stuff around us. Don't be satisfied to be rich. Had the wealth of Bill Gates and realize it's not enough. All the riches in the world, it's not enough if you don't have Christ. There's greater riches out there. You want that. That's what you treasure in your heart, Christ. It's no real loss to give up everything and gain something that's far greater than all that you had before. Look back with me, if you will, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, manure, garbage, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is it that Paul treasures? He said, I'm willing to give everything else up. Why? Because he found in his life, it was a hindrance from Christ. He depended upon that workspace righteousness. He said, I'll give it all up if I may gain Christ. If I may gain the resurrection from the dead and be with him. Christ must be our treasure. Psalm 73, 25 reads, Whom have I but you, referring to God, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. May that be our prayer. There's nothing else we have. Even though we know we have things, there's nothing we have but God. And there's nothing we desire but Him. And we'll find it much easier to be content when we have Him. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8, tells us that it's great gain. Contentment's great gain. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we will be content. Think through those words. How many of us, if we really truly had food and clothing, would be content? But what does he say? Godliness with contentment, not just godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great value. It's treasures. It's riches. Everything else we have is going to pass away. We take that with us. Treasuring Christ. So how is it that we come to treasure Christ more than the stuff around us? Well, through Christ. Going back to what I read earlier, the command, Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So how is it that we can forsake all those things around us? Because Christ will still be with us. Even if we lose those things, he will never leave us or forsake us. Going back to Philippians 4. What he says in this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's through Christ who gives us strength, that we are enabled to undergo whatever our lot may be. It's not that I just suck it up myself and think, 
I'll be okay if I lose everything. Or, I'll be okay if I win the lottery. I can make it through this. No. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's Christ that gives us the strength to endure these things. Realizing that no matter what our life is, if you are in Christ, He's using everything we have to conform us more and more to the image of His Son. Think of Christ when I talk about being conformed to the image of His Son. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become His righteousness. He had everything. He did not know sin. He took upon Himself sin. He became like us so that we could have righteousness. That's riches. I turn to any of you who have not trusted in Christ. You're missing out on those riches. You're going to look around you over and over again to the things around you to try to find satisfaction. I'm telling you, it will never satisfy. You'll never find anything in this life that will provide for you true satisfaction apart from Christ Jesus. I think if you're not a Christian, there's maybe many reasons in your heart why you can say, I'm angry at God. God has been bad to me. My lot in life has been rough, it's been hard, it's been tough. God hasn't been good to me. But if we rightly look at the Scripture, the wages of sin is death. One sin. One sin would deserve death. The fact that we wake up each day, God's grace, God's riches, that we don't deserve. You can see God's riches and His grace to you that He has not yet sent you to hell. That you're not, that, you're not yet there. He's giving you time to repent. God's good to all of us in giving us even that. But even in this time we're given, if we look for satisfaction in anything else, we'll remain unsatisfied. We'll find ourselves in the depth of depression. We may find happiness for a while, but we'll never experience joy. Christians, non-Christians alike, may we look to Christ Jesus and depend upon Him and find our treasure in Him that we will truly be content even though we're not satisfied with even the greatest riches in this life. I want to close our time with reading um, a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's a book of Puritan prayers. This is the one entitled Contentment. I've given, I've modernized the language a little bit. I'm going to read it and then follow that up by us closing in prayer. Heavenly Father, if I should suffer need and go unclothed and be in poverty, make my heart prize your love. Know it. Be constrained by it. Though I be denied all blessings, it is your mercy to afflict and try me with wants. For by these trials I see my sins and desire severance from them. Let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, temptations. If I can thereby feel sin, it's the greatest evil. And be delivered from it with gratitude to you. Acknowledging this as the highest testimony of your love. When your son Jesus came into my soul instead of sin... He became more dear to me than sin had formerly been. His kindly rule replaced sin's tyranny. 
teach me to believe that if I ever would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but must invite Christ to abide in place of it. And He must become to me more than vile lust had been. In His sweetness, power, life may be there. Therefore, I must seek a grace from from Him contrary to sin, but must not claim it apart from Himself. When I am afraid of evils to come, comfort me by showing me that in myself I am a dying, condemned wretch. But in Christ I am reconciled and live. That in myself I find insufficiency and no rest. But in Christ there is satisfaction and peace. That in myself I am feeble and unable to do good. But in Christ I have the ability to do all things. Though now I have His graces in part, I shall shortly have them perfectly in that state where you will show yourself fully reconciled and alone sufficient, efficient, loving me completely with sin abolished. O Lord, hasten that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts to love you more. We pray for anyone who has not loved you, who has not known your love, that they would, that you would work in their hearts and change them. We pray that in loving you more, we would hate sin more, that we'd see the vileness of it, how wretched it is, and that we would not treasure the sin around us, that we treasure Christ, that our love for Christ would replace our love for our sins, our love for even legitimate things around us. We pray that we would realize the shortness of our lives. And at the same time, we'd realize the sweetness of heaven. We would not cling to the things around us, but realize that we are sojourners, we are visitors, pilgrims traveling through this life, longing for our Sabbath rest in heaven, for that land. Help us to know that you alone satisfy our souls. May we depend on nothing else in our life but find true contentment in Christ alone. We pray this in His name. Amen.